Welcome to Songcraft. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is the show that brings you in-depth conversations with the creators of great songs, from the ones you know and love to the ones you should know. Be sure to subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts, and visit us at songcraftshow.com. You're listening to On Broadway, recorded by George Benson and co-written by our guest on this episode of Songcraft, Mike Stoller. Stoller has written more than 60 songs that appeared on the Billboard charts, including the number one hits Hound Dog, Kansas City, Yakety Yak, Searchin', Jailhouse Rock, Poison Ivy, Stand By Me, Youngblood, Don't, and Ruby Baby. Stoller and songwriting partner Jerry Lieber's early top 10 hits include Black Denim Trousers by The Cheers, Smokey Joe's Cafe by The Robins, I Want to Do More by Ruth Brown, and The Chicken and the Hawk by Big Joe Turner. After scoring a multi-chart number one hit with Hound Dog in 1956, Elvis Presley went on to record more than 20 Lieber and Stoller titles, including the hit singles Love Me, Loving You, Jailhouse Rock, Treat Me Nice, She's Not You, and Bossa Nova Baby. Mike and Jerry signed an independent production deal with Atlantic Records in the mid-1950s where they wrote and produced a series of hits, including Lucky Lips for Ruth Brown, Saved for Laverne Baker, and the Drifters hits There Goes My Baby, Dance With Me, and On Broadway. Additionally, the pair wrote and produced all the Coasters singles, including Youngblood, Searchin', Charlie Brown, Along Came Jones, and Poison Ivy. Other highlights from the Lieber and Stoller songbook include Elvis Presley's Santa Claus is Back in Town, Love Potion No. 9, which was a hit for both the Clovers and the Searchers, Is That All There Is, which was a hit for Peggy Lee, and Frank Sinatra's The Girls I Never Kissed. Eleven different versions of Stand By Me appeared on the Billboard charts over the span of 50 years, with the original version by Benny King hitting the top ten in both 1961 and 1986. The long list of artists who've covered Mike's songs include The Beatles, Little Richard, Buddy Holly, Jerry Lee Lewis, Fats Domino, Etta James, Gladys Knight and the Pips, B.B. King, Muddy Waters, The Rolling Stones, The Everly Brothers, Neil Diamond, Johnny Cash, Willie Nelson, Otis Redding, Marvin Gaye, Al Green, Diana Ross, Tony Bennett, Edith Piaf, and hundreds more. Smokey Joe's Cafe, which included 40 Lieber and Stoller songs, opened in 1995 and became the longest-running musical review in Broadway history. Stoller received the prestigious ASCAP Founders Award in 1991, has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and is a member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame and the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You know, my dad was an Elvis fan, and I remember him talking to me about Lieber and Stoller. Yeah. And I can honestly say that's the first time that I remember hearing the name of a songwriter or a songwriting duo. Hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of people back in those days just kind of uh, figured whoever's singing the song must be the person who made it up. Right. Yeah, it is pretty incredible to to think about um, not only the, all the Elvis songs, but right. um, all the other R&B and pop hits uh, that these guys wrote. Um, because they're songs that... I don't even remember ever hearing like for the first time. It's almost like they're just part of my DNA. And I think a lot of people would say that, that this is like you're you're born knowing a lot of these Lieber and Stoller songs. Stand by me. Yeah. 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 Can can you imagine not knowing that song? Right. Yakety Yak. Hell when no. have I ever heard Yakety Yak? <laughs> but I could sing you every word of it. You know? It's yeah. just part of it's just part of our culture. And yeah, I mean it's it's pretty astounding to think um, and intimidating to think I'm going to have the opportunity to go and talk to the guy mm-hmm. who actually 
created this music. Right. And yeah. it was, I think I can probably speak for both of us. This was a real high point sure. to, to drive up. And I'm not just talking about a high point because Mike's house is way up in the <laughs> up Hollywood, in the Hollywood Hills. Hills, overlooking the whole city. Yeah. On a high point, but yeah. maybe the best view of LA that I've seen since I've lived out here. Insane. That's yeah. where he belongs. Yeah, he he. If anyone deserves to be looking down over <laughs> the cultural capital of right. the U.S., uh, it's definitely Mike Stoller. And you know, as kind of nervous as I was uh, about going to to visit him, um, the nervousness uh, stemmed only from the uh, just the sheer magnitude and the impressiveness of his catalog, because right. there is nothing about the man himself to set anyone ill at ease. I mean, he was so kind mm -hmm. and, and welcoming and yeah. warm and so generous with his time. I mean, we were there for, for a few hours. Yeah. Um, and he just welcomed us and, and was so, um, you know, gracious and, and thoughtful in his responses, though I'm sure he's been asked a lot of these questions, you know, right. millions of times. Um, so it's nice when you meet one of your heroes and they turn out to be a, a cool guy. Yeah, and it is true in these situations. We never know what we're going to encounter. Yeah. You never know if you're going to find somebody that's full of themselves or, or going to kind of treat you poorly. And, you know, honestly, you don't know what to expect, especially with somebody kind of this big. And, and I want to say this important. Yeah. Because I, I think Lieber and Stoller and the songs that they created were more than just things to be on the radio yeah. they really did shape pop culture yeah in a lot of ways and, and in some ways I, i'll even go so far as to say they shaped race relations in a way when you when you have a guy like elvis who's kind of blurring the lines between right. what black people do and what white people do yeah and that's really where mike and jerry came from with yeah. their whole approach before elvis even for sure um and you know when you you mentioned that it just makes me think of in terms of living people who have influenced popular culture there's not many that are in the mike stoller league no you know you got the bob dylan's of the world you've got uh the michael jordan's of the world i don't think michael jordan writes songs but you know no. in terms of influence Probably on popular ones, culture yeah. you know he might write songs we yeah. should talk, we should talk to him <laughs> um but you know you've got the michael jordan's the bob dylan's the the stevie wonders the princes uh you know these are people who we regard as as icons um but the just the sheer impact that Mike has had on on our culture. Um, there might be some Americans who don't know the name Mike Stoller, right. but I would bet you'd be pretty hard pressed to find an American who had never heard any of Mike Stoller's songs. Yeah, no, I think you're right, and and like you said, with all that, with that great cultural impact and that great career, Mike was still just a sweet, yeah. humble awesome guy to talk to yeah and you know unlike most of the situations when you meet your heroes and you chat with them all you have usually in those situations is just a story yeah maybe a photo yeah but in this case we've got the whole conversation right. recorded for the yeah. rest of our lives yeah which is awesome so uh hey let's uh let's go hear a little of that now all right mike welcome to songcraft <laughs> happy to be here yeah thank you um, well, you were born in Queens, New York in 1933 in a household that, from what I gather, um, put value on music, uh, encouraged music, and made music a part of the home. Um, when was the first time you heard a piece of music that moved you? Oh, uh, when I was about three, uh, was Salome's Dance by Richard Strauss. Hmm. 
and I played it over and over on a Victrola. Mm. I loved that. That was really the first piece of music that kind of entranced me. Wow. Yeah. But the second was at a summer camp when I was seven or eight. And it was an interracial summer camp. And there was a black teenager who was practicing some boogie-woogie on the piano. And uh, that I was mesmerized by that. Yeah. And I stood in a corner. He thought he was alone, but I was watching him. Hmm. And when he left, I tried to imitate the way his hands had moved. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I got very turned on by that. Yeah. When you say interracial summer camp, and I, I'm doing the math here, I mean, we're talking late 1940. 30s. 1940. Yeah. Wow. So your parents were obviously much more progressively minded than a lot of folks in that era then. Yeah. Uh, yeah. My mom in particular. Hmm. Yeah. And she also had music going all the time on WQXR, which was, quote, the good music station, <laughs> which was classical. Right. And it was on, you know, throughout the day. Yeah. Wow. Were uh, were lessons a bigger part of your learning experience or more of those kind of watching and imitation type of learning? Uh, well, I took lessons, but my aunt started to teach me when I was about five. Hmm. And she was a like a concert pianist. She was a bit of a recluse, but she had, uh, in the family history, uh, they said graduated the Vienna Conservatory of Music when she was 12 because they couldn't teach her anything mm. more. <laughs> well, uh, wow. Who knows? But <laughs> she slapped my hands when they weren't properly curved. Right. <laughs> and that was the end of that. <laughs> uh, so that was probably about three or four weeks of <laughs> lessons. Yeah, And then there was a a guy named Louis Kantorovsky who went door to door in my neighborhood in Sunnyside in Queens hmm. uh, giving piano lessons. Wow. And uh, I wasn't too excited about that. <laughs> but I, you know, it was the, the happy peasant and whatever other... Spinning song. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> yeah. And, and then a neighbor heard me playing Boogie Woogie on the piano. Yeah. And he somehow insisted that I meet James P. Johnson, hmm. who was Fats Waller's teacher and the great stride pianist. Yeah. You know, he taught me the structure of the blues, uh, which was great. Yeah. And uh, I wish I would have learned a lot more from him hmm. than I did. Yeah. Uh, because uh, I never played stride, you know that. Uh, right. Yeah. That's crazy left hand stuff. That's yeah. It's really, you know, I could only do the boogie woogie left right. hand. <laughs> right. In kind of your early teen years in New York, did you have a chance to hear some live musicians that were, you know, influential to you? Any that stood out? Oh sure. Well, I after my interest in. And Boogie Woogie, I, I got interested briefly in 
uh, Dixieland or New Orleans cool. jazz, you know. Um, I heard Charlie Parker hmm. on a record, and I went bananas for that, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, Now's the Time and Billy's Bounce. That was a back-to-back single on yeah. 78. And um, then I got to go to uh, 52nd Street, uh, where I'd walk in and uh, I'd say in my deepest voice at 14, I'll have a beer. (laughs) (laughs) And so I could stay there. And uh, I heard many, many fabulous musicians, Charlie Parker, uh, Miles Davis, Wow. was with Charlie Parker, but he had to stand off the stage because it was so, <laughs> so narrow, wow. the stage. It's incredible. And uh, Lucky Thompson and Alan Eager and uh, Stan Getz. Wow. Jeez. George Shearing. Wow. An uh, uh, endless number of great musicians. Yeah. And then Thelonious Monk was playing wow. at the uh, Royal Roost. And Tad Dameron. Uh, I read in your, your autobiography, you, you mentioned that your mother had, had actually dated George Gershwin uh, when she was younger. And, and you talk about your mom leaving the radio on the, I uh, forgot the word you used, but sort of the, the highbrow station, for, for lack of a better word, more formal music. The, you know, the theater classical music. station. Yeah. yeah. Um, what was your your family's reaction to this budding interest in, in bebop and boogie-woogie. I mean, how did they feel about you becoming passionate about that music? Oh, well, I think my dad found it amusing. My mom, I don't know. But then, you know, when I started writing songs with Jerry, uh, she was very supportive. Yeah. And, in fact, she went to visit Jerry's mother who was not quite so supportive. She wanted him to go to school and become a doctor or a lawyer and also to work at the same time. Wow. And and not to waste his time making up songs. (laughs) Right, right. (laughs) And uh, so my mother tried to tell her, you know, this was worthwhile and it was... Well, you moved to Los Angeles when you were 16, and I understand that you actually got the opportunity to play some gigs with Chet Baker. Uh, How did that come about? Uh, Well, when I got here, I was going to go to UCLA, but I needed six months of U.S. history after my records came from high school. And Mm. ultimately, I had to go up the street because I lived right near Belmont High School, which Mm. is... Mm -hmm. Uh, you know where that's where my wife went to school actually oh really yeah but there was a guys in in the school the Vasquez brothers who had a a band uh, Ray or Blas Vasquez played baritone sax and his brother played alto Mm. and we did some boogie woogie numbers as well and I was playing piano and then uh, I got to play uh, a dance mm. and Chet was playing trumpet with the band Wow! and we met and and we became kind of friendly mm. and, and yeah. then I used to go see him a few years later with the Jerry Mulligan Quartet okay. 
at a club out here called The Hague, mm. which was a, a little house not far from the Coconut Grove. Well, and so you're here in L.A., you're a teenager, you're 17 years old, and then here's a name that, that we're going to talk about a lot is Jerry Lieber. You had a chance to meet Jerry Lieber. I believe it was 1950. Um, he would go on to become your writing, production, and business partner. I'd love to hear about just the first time meeting Jerry and your first impressions of him. I got a phone call. Boyce on the other end of the phone said, uh, uh, Hello, uh, my name is Jerome Lieber, and uh, I understand that you played a dance in East L.A. recently, and you played the piano. Is that right? I said, Yeah. He said, uh, You can write music? I said, Yes. He said, You can write notes on paper? <laughs> I said, Yes. And finally he said, well, I write lyrics. Uh, how would you like to write songs with me? And I said, mm. no. <laughs> and he said, well, w why not? And I said, I don't like songs. And I was thinking of the songs one heard in the middle of the dial on pop radio. Right, right. He said, well, what do you like? And I was being very presumptuous, and so I said, well, I like uh, uh, Thelonious Monk, Charlie Parker, uh, Stravinsky, and Bartok. <laughs> and uh, I'm still very grateful to him for what he said next, which was, well, nevertheless, I think we ought to meet and talk, <laughs> <laughs> talk about this. I said, hey, you want to come over? Come over. And, uh, it, as I remember it, I, as I hung up the phone, the doorbell rang. <laughs> <clears throat> but I opened the door, and my first impression was I'd never seen a guy with one brown eye and one blue eye before. Hmm. Uh -huh. <laughs> and the light was coming through in the second story of this three-story building we lived in. Uh, down on Columbia Avenue. And um, finally, you know, I was just staring at him. Finally, my mother yelled from the kitchen, aren't you going to invite your friend in? <laughs> I said, oh, yeah, come on in. <laughs> <laughs> and he carried a, um, a school notebook. And I said, are those your words, your lyrics? He said, yeah. I said, well, let me see them. Oh, I was very aggressive. It's your house. <laughs> you got it. So uh, I looked at them, and I could see from the way they were written, <clears throat> there was a line of lyric, a line of ditto marks, and then a rhyming line. I said, hey, these are blues. These are 12-bar blues. Yeah. yeah. You didn't say you were writing the blues. He said, well... I wasn't sure what I was writing. I was writing <laughs> songs. Yeah. So I went to the piano and started jamming some blues, and he started singing along, uh, and uh, we wow. shook hands and said, we'll be partners. Wow. Well, 
I know that when you guys started writing songs early on in L.A. that uh, Lester Sill became kind of a, a professional friend and mentor who helped you guys navigate some of the early days of the, the music business. Um, and Lester Sill's not necessarily a, a household name. So for those who, who don't know, tell us a little bit about who he was and how you guys got in, involved with him and um, in what ways that relationship contributed to your early success. Well, the actually, Jerry's looking for somebody who could write notes on paper mm-hmm. came from Lester Sill. Lester hmm. Sill was a sales manager at that time for Modern Records, which was one of Los Angeles's early rhythm and blues record companies. And Jerry had been working after school at a record store, uh, Nordy's record store. And Lester had come in to try to sell Nordy some, you know, B.B. King at Mm. 3 o'clock in the morning. (laughs) And he and Jerry struck up a conversation and uh, he asked Jerry what he was going to do when he grew up. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, Jerry said, I'm going to be a songwriter. And he said, well, sing me some songs. And he sang him something. Or, yeah. Um, and Lester said, oh, that's good, you know, but you got to find somebody who can, uh, you got to ha- make a lead sheet. Right. And then you put your words under the notes, <laughs> and you got to find somebody who can write notes on paper. <laughs> right. But anyway, Lester set up an appointment for us at uh, Modern Records. And we waited 20 minutes, and I was nervous. Mm. I was nervous about like, playing. I've always been nervous about mm. performing. Mm. And I said, uh, we had an appointment at uh, 12 o'clock, and it's 20 after 12, and they're not here. I said, that's terrible. Let's get out of here. <laughs> I was insulted. Right. <laughs> <laughs> So we walked up the street, and as it happened, on the other side of Cannon Drive, further up, we saw a sign, Aladdin Records. So we mm. went into Aladdin Records. Wow. And uh, I'm trying to think of his name. From Maxwell Davis was their in-house A&R right. guy. Yeah. And he said, well, play us some of your songs. So we went in the back room and... And we walked out with contracts. Wow. You know? <laughs> uh, I don't think either of those songs was ever recorded, but right. we had, you know. You had we proof. Was, we were 16 <laughs> yeah. years old, and we had right. songwriter contracts yeah. right. from right. a real company. <laughs> and um, <laughs> later we did write some songs uh, that Charles Brown and... Amos Milburn and uh, some other people yeah. Yeah. did on right. Aladdin Records. Well, and that, that Charles Brown record on Aladdin, the uh, Hard Times, that hit the top 10 on the R&B chart. And I, I, yeah. I think that was, I mean, I know you guys had had some cuts prior, but I think that was the first Lieber and Stoller song to hit the, you charts. Know, to hit the charts. Yeah. Hard Times Who I feel so bad 
When I lost my baby, I lost everything I had. Uh, you know, and I'm curious, in those early days that, that we're talking about, did you and Jerry have a disciplined, regular schedule where we're going to meet these days from the, these times to write, or was it just sort of as inspiration struck? Well, we we met every day. Hmm. Uh, and, um, you know, looking back on it, I mean, it was fun, and yet it was hard work, but, uh, you know, we worked 18 hours a day sometimes. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. Because... Uh, what else did we have to do? <laughs> <laughs> right, right. So it wasn't so much about being disciplined as it was about just being so passionate yeah. about the music. You just do it all the time. Right. Yeah, interesting. And and then, you know, as years went by, Jerry would call me at midnight and say, hey, I got an idea. <laughs> yeah. Which didn't go over well when I was married. You know? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> right. Not 17-year-old kids hanging right. out anymore. Right. <laughs> Yeah, one of those songs you guys wrote early on was uh, Kansas City. Um, and I think Little Willie Littlefield had released it as KC Lovin', but it didn't become a major hit until Wilbert Harrison's version. Um, number one pop and R&B in 1959. Kansas City, here I come They got some crazy little women there And I'm gonna get me one Um, what can you tell us about writing that song? Little Willie Littlefield was going to be recorded. This was on Federal Records, mm-hmm. which was a division of King Records out of uh, Cincinnati, I think. Mm, yeah. But uh, Ralph Bass had uh, the uh, moved into the distributor's office. And one day he said, um, you know, why don't you guys write a song about Kansas City? <laughs> so we asked a couple of people, you know, about a street name or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, so we heard about 12th Street and Vine. But we wrote the song, and uh, from our own, you know, juvenile perspective <laughs> about you know, what kind of crazy sex was going on. I mean, that was all we were thinking about anyway, (laughs) other than music. And the record came out great. And then Ralph, after we recorded the song, said, you know what's hip? KC. KC is really hip. Right. So he changed the title of the song to KC Lovin'. Hmm. But... Casey isn't mentioned anywhere in the song, <laughs> right. so I'm wow. going to Kansas City. Right, right. And then Wilbert Harrison remembered the song, apparently. Right. The only change that he made in the lyric, in the original, it's, and I'm going to get me some. Right. Which <laughs> rhymed with Here I Come. Right. <laughs> and he changed it. They, they got crazy little women there, and I'm going to get me one, which right. was more... You know, right. sanitized, sanitized. <laughs> yeah. right, right. Uh, but uh, it's basically other than that, it's the same. Yeah, same yeah. song, and it became a smash hit. Yeah. yeah, even though, if I remember correctly, the beginning of the vocals seems to be off mic. Hmm. 
Hmm. Wow. <laughs> well, you, you, perfection was less important in those days yeah. than, the, yeah. than the feel. The feel. Yeah, yeah. 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 You, you hear a lot of, uh, uh, even some of the chess records had wrong bass notes. Mm. You know, <laughs> right. Because they made a chord change, the guy didn't right. catch up right away. Yeah, and just keep it rolling. But they felt wonderful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. If it was the take, you keep yeah, it. Yeah, you got it. Yeah, you go for broke every take because yeah. there was... Literally no overdubbing, yeah. although we tried, <laughs> and, we, and we did on occasion. Right. Yeah. Uh, but you'd have to play the whole tape and then add something on a microphone right. to the wow. original. Wow. Yeah, it was. Now, when you and, and Jerry wrote your book, Hound Dog, um, you know, one of the things you both were honest about in that book was that the the nature of your collaborations could get argumentative. It, it could get contentious. And I remember in, in the book that Kansas city was one of those. Yeah. Um, and now it makes sense to me once you've established a long career of hits with someone, uh, why you would, why you would stick it out. But I'm curious in those early days when you were just beginning to have success, um, why continue to kind of slog it out even when it wasn't fun? Well, <laughs> <laughs> you know, we had a, a certain aspect of our relationship was such that, that we were on the same wavelength. Hmm. You know, we we had the same sense of humor um, and uh, we had a lot of, you know, within a, a couple of years, we already had a lot of history. Right. Yeah, sure. And besides, who else did we know that was writing... <laughs> Yeah. Right. A, a blues song. Yeah. Right, right. I mean, point. most of the people who wrote blues songs were the performers. Right. And although some of them could write well, yep. most of them were not great writers. Sure. They were, could be great singers. Yeah. And they used, you know, lines from other songs and yeah, so yeah. on and so forth. So... Yeah. It was just us against the world. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, and one of your best-known songs, uh, of course, is Hound Dog, which 1953 became your first number one record um, when Big Mama Thornton took it to the top of the R&B charts. Um, right. You ain't nothing but a hound first start tasting that kind of success what were some of the things about the business some of the realities of the music business that maybe were a bit of a shock or you know kind of hit you in those moments when you first started to really hit it well um when we started writing this kind of music we wrote it because we loved it Mm -hmm. and uh i don't think we thought that we'd make mo- real money from it, but you know we thought we could get something. But with uh, with uh, Hound Dog, it was um, became more complex because we had been writing for uh, Johnny Otis. He had different people in his band that he wanted us to write for, right. and. 
when we did the session with Big Mama, mm. which he was doing for um, Peacock Records that was headquartered in, in Houston, Texas. Uh, he apparently told Don Roby, the owner, that he had written the song with us. Mm. Oh. <laughs> and also that he had power of attorney to sign a contract with him. Mm. And uh, so th we kept waiting for the record to come out. Right. Then finally, before it came out, Don Roby came to town and wanted another songwriter agreement with just Jerry and me. Right. Because he'd apparently heard <laughs> that we had written the song. Yeah. yeah. So he... Uh, he gave us uh, a check for $1,200, hmm. and our mothers had to sign because we were underage. Wow. And then he went back to Texas and stopped payment on the check. <laughs> oh, jeez. <laughs> you know, it was a big mess, and yeah. ultimately was, yeah. we went to court mm. after Elvis had done it. Yeah. And... Uh, we won. I mean, yeah, no yeah, question yeah. about it. And Johnny <laughs> was a great guy, but yeah. he was used to a kind of, you know, it was like Duke Ellington put his name on songs that uh, were written by band members. Right, you right. Know? Yeah. And I guess it was considered part of the territory but right. we didn't feel that way sure yeah, yeah. and a uh, crash course in the in the music business yeah <laughs> it was yeah. well you guys um when you were i think just out of your teens launched your own uh label spark records and with lester sill by the way oh he was with you guys in that yeah yeah and you guys really i mean i know you had sort of kind of produced the Big Mama Thornton record by default, but yes. you, you started getting more intentional about being um, producers. And, and a great example of one of your early productions is the number one R&B hit, Riot and Cellblock, number nine, which, of course, you guys produced and wrote. On July the 2nd, 1953, I was serving time for armed robbery. At four o'clock in the morning, I was sleeping in my cell. I heard a whistle blow, then I heard somebody yell. There's a ride going on. There's a ride going on. There's a now, I think people know about. Uh, Mike Stoller and Jerry Lieber as songwriters, you know, that, that you typically were the, the music guy and that Jerry was typically the lyric guy. But give us a sense in the studio how your, your partnership played out, what roles you guys kind of played as producers in, in terms of interacting with the talent and, and how you would sort of conduct a session. Well, first of all, when we were really able to control a session, like at Spark Records, uh, we rehearsed. Mm. We rehearsed the group for two weeks mm. before we went, almost every day before we went into the studio. Wow. And it was, you know, it, it worked like mm. that. Yeah. Then when we got to the studio, well, in the very first sessions that we attended, Jerry used to 
pushed me to play the piano, and I was reluctant because there were good piano players out there yeah. and, uh, you know, guys who'd been playing the blues all their lives and right. so on and so forth. And I was very reluctant to ask them to step aside. <laughs> <laughs> so when we started producing, like, for Spark, well, I'd hire the band and uh, and I would play the piano. Hmm. So I worked from the floor, usually with the, the musicians. Right. And Jerry, usually from in the booth hmm. and on the microphone thing. Yeah, yeah. But a lot of our work was done beforehand. Mm. Right, right. Um, preparation, yeah. Yeah, we did a lot of preparation. Interesting. Um, another one of those early Robbins singles um, was Framed. Uh, which opens with the line, I was walking down the street minding my own affairs when two policemen grabbed me unawares. Um, you know, in light of the, the Black Lives Matter movement and a lot of the things that we're seeing happen in our culture today, you know, that's a song that still kind of has a, a cultural resonance um, with headlines that we're seeing now. And I'm I'm curious if you and, and Jerry thought of yourselves as having a particular social perspective that you were trying to to get across with your music yeah absolutely i mean not every song yeah certainly but uh yeah that and then later there's a song uh run red run Mm -hmm. that was one of the coasters yeah right yeah we thought of ourselves or wanted to as black yeah uh that's the milieu of our of our work and therefore of our lives mm. at that time. Yeah. And um you know I I no longer think of myself as black obviously. <laughs> and yet I am I have uh, the same uh feelings about race relations. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean you were in a especially <clears throat> at that moment um in a society that didn't necessarily acknowledge the kind of homogeny that you can find in a recording studio with with white guys and black guys working together and playing together and yet in music you can sort of find that cohesion yeah to some degree certainly yeah Yeah. uh although even then you know it was kind of uh uh it was unusual Yeah. yeah in other words right a white guy's owning a record company was one thing but uh, directing the recordings, um, creating the songs, even create right yeah. was more unusual. I mean, Jerry and I would walk in to some of those sessions, and the, you know we got along great, but they would sometimes look at Jerry's hair. To, <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's right. Funny. Well, in in 1956, kind of a pivotal moment, your first number one pop record when a guy named Elvis Presley recorded Hound Dog with some kind of sanitized lyrics from what you guys had had before. Um, yeah, they <laughs> they took the lyrics. There was a group called Freddie Bell and the Bell Boys, which, I mean, I learned about them after I learned about Elvis doing mm-hmm. Hound Dog. Uh, and they had done that version because the original version is a woman's song. Right. Hmm. 
and uh, it's a woman singing to a gigolo or a, a boyfriend gone bad or right. whatever. Right. And saying, get out of here. Yeah. You know, get out of my house, get yeah. out of my life. You're nothing but a hound dog. And uh, that was the intent in the song. Right. And uh, Big Mama's record, you know, we loved it. Yeah. So once once you heard Elvis's version, it must have been, you know, let's say kind of a, a shock to the system. Like, whoa, this version of, of this song, <laughs> we already loved, you know, this version. It had been perfectly realized with it Big had Mama. Been. Yeah. Um, how did you first become aware of, of Elvis and his version, and how did that kind of hit your radar? Well, a lot of things happened uh, in that time because I was coming back from uh, Europe on my first trip to Europe. I'd been gone three months. And um, I came back on a beautiful ship called the Andrea Doria. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it we almost made it to New York, but it sank. Mm. It was There was a collision with the Stockholm. Yikes. And uh, we managed to get off into a broken lifeboat. Mm. Wow. And I was picked up by a freighter uh, and eventually got to New York. And Jerry was in New York to meet me. We lived in L.A. at the time. Mm. But he knew I was coming in. Uh, in not such a dramatic fashion. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I had sent, from the freighter, I sent a telegram to Atlantic Records because Jerry and Lester were going to be there right. and so on. And then Jerry was at the dock when I came down the gangplank and he ran up to me and said, Mike, we got a smash hit. <laughs> <laughs> I said, you're kidding. He said, no, Hound Dog. I said, Big Mama Thornton? He said, no, some white kid named Elvis Presley. You ain't nothing but a hound dog. Then I heard it, I think, a day or two later. And, uh, you know, I, it it didn't have the right feel. <laughs> too fast and yeah. kind of nervous sounding compared to Big Mama's record. Yeah, right? yeah. And uh, after it sold about 7 million singles, I began to see some merit in it. <laughs> yeah, you warmed up to it. Well, Elvis had uh, another big hit with your song Love Me, but similar to, to Hound Dog, that was a song that had previously been recorded by an R&B act, and in that case, uh, Willie and Ruth on, on your on Spark, Spark label. Records, right. um, so you guys didn't actually get into writing songs specifically with Elvis in mind until some of those the movie soundtracks, um, starting with, with Loving You, for which you wrote uh, Hot Dog, as well as the title track, of course. Um, and before this point, I mean, I know you guys had worked with The Cheers, um, for whom you wrote hits like Black Denim Trousers and and Motorcycle Boots, Um, but you obviously had been primarily working with Black Axe. You were working in in the R&B world. Um, Once you got into writing songs for Elvis, 
Did you consciously approach that writing process any differently than you might have approached writing for, for the R&B acts that you were working with up to that point? Um, I, I don't know. I, I can't, because after the first few, well, Hound Dog, of course, we knew nothing about till right, right. it came out. Right. Um, Love Me... The publishers, uh, Hill and Range Songs, uh, Gene Aberbach, mm-hmm. Gene and Julian Aberbach owned that. We had had some interaction with them before that. Yeah. Uh, and it actually had to do with the song Love Me. So you guys had already had some experience with Hill and Range Music Publishing, which published so many of those um, Elvis songs. So I guess it wasn't a, an entirely new experience. Yeah. Well, the the great opportunities kept coming, and you and Jerry came up with four songs for the next Elvis film, Treat Me Nice, I Want to Be Free, You're So Square, Baby, I Don't Care, and and in the title song, Jailhouse Rock. Guys wrote those songs really quickly. Yeah, in one afternoon, out? actually. All four of them in one afternoon. Yeah. Jeez. We we were in New York because we were now producing, you know, a lot of records for Atlantic, mm-hmm. and they were based in New York. And Hill and Range was the the Elvis connection, right? And and we were having a ball in New York. Yeah. You know we were hanging out at uh, nightclubs, music clubs, going to the theater, uh, just having a great time. (laughs) And Gene Aberbach gave us a script for a new Elvis Presley movie. He said, "Uh, I need songs, boys. (laughs) And uh, we kind of tossed it in the corner of our hotel suite. And um, then... On a Saturday, as I recall, there was a knock at the door. We were having breakfast, and Gene came in, and he said, where are our songs? <laughs> and uh, I remember Jerry said, don't worry, Gene, you'll have them. He said, I know, because I'm not leaving without them. <laughs> and he pushed a big overstuffed chair in front of our only exit. <laughs> he said, I'll take a nap. <laughs> And out of necessity to get back out, <laughs> yeah. we wrote four songs and picked up the script and saw there was a amateur contest in prison. <laughs> and that's what gave rise to the idea wow. for Jailhouse Rock. And the other songs uh, were just kind of generic songs that Elvis could do. Yeah, um, I Want to Be Free, of course, had... A, Dual meaning. Yeah. Hmm. <laughs> one was prison and one was out of our hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> but yeah, so in 1958, you guys had a number one with Elvis, uh, again, with Don't, which was a little bit of a different kind of song than you guys had been providing him up to this point, more of a slow burner. Don't, 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 don't. 
the story behind that one when we did the songs for jailhouse rock and we were elvis wanted us in the studio we hadn't met him before oh, wow but he asked that we be there and after the first day or half day uh steve shoals who was the a and r man for victor he just walked out because we had more <laughs> or less taken over right <laughs> and we we didn't get any credit or or remuneration right. for doing that, but right. we did it because it was our songs. Yeah. yeah. And he had asked us to be there, so we figured, why would we be there if we weren't, yeah. you know, working? <laughs> right. And uh, at the end of the week, the guys from the the motion picture studio came over to hear the playbacks. And during the playbacks one of the guys said to jerry listen you could be the piano player in the film and so he said i don't play piano he said it doesn't matter you look like one (laughs) and the day he was supposed to go to the costume shop he had an impacted wisdom tooth Mm. and he said mike you go i said but they wanted you he said they won't know the difference (laughs) So I went, and um, the costume shop, you know, they it was a Hawaiian shirt we had to try on. Right. Basically, that right. was it. The rest of the time, you wore your own clothes. It right. was very low budget, <laughs> considering, because yeah. all the money went to Elvis and the Colonel. Right. <laughs> right. Um, anyway, so I became, oh, they made me shave my beard off. They said it was a scene stealer. Wow. Um, Elvis can't compete with a beard. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, I got to hang a bit with Elvis, you know. And uh, one day he said, Mike, write me a real pretty ballad. So this was a Friday. I called Jerry. We wrote Don't on Saturday. Mm. And uh, then I brought it in to Elvis, and he loved it. Yeah. And then we started getting repercussions hmm. because the song hadn't gone through the right channels right. Uh, that yeah. we had dared to present a song of ours directly to Elvis, yeah. possibly getting a song done that they didn't publish, right. yeah. et cetera, et cetera. So that became a big to-do yeah. anyway. Yeah. He ended up recording it, and it became... Very successful. A great song. Right, right. And the strange thing about it is that it's 12 bars, but it's not a blues. Mm. Mm. Right. Although it has blues, some blues inflections in it, but it's 12 bars long. I only found that out after we'd written it, and I wrote the lead sheet out, and I started counting. <laughs> you, you, you might have been so kind of steeped in that 12-bar thing, you didn't even notice it. Maybe. Well, despite the, uh, despite the, the politics surrounding Elvis, um, you guys... We're still able to to get your songs cut by him, and and his next film, King Creole, included three Lieber and Stoller cuts, which were the title track, of course, um, Steadfast, Loyal, and True, and then also Trouble. If you're looking for trouble, you came to the right place. If you're looking for trouble, just look right in my face. I was born standing up and talking back. My daddy was a green-eyed 
Um, now, Trouble is a song to me that really harkens back to more of the the yeah. blues and R and B leanings that that you and Jerry started out with. Um, did did Elvis share your passion for that kind of music? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Uh, we were surprised when we met Elvis that he knew almost as much about the blues as we did. Mm. And I certainly knew a hell of a lot more about gospel music than we did. Yeah, yeah. And we hit it off great, you know, when we first met. And, yeah. And we talked about different records, different mm. R&B records. Yeah, he knew them all. Yeah, yeah. Um, so in total, Elvis recorded nearly 25 Lieber and Stoller songs, including Santa Claus is Back in Town and Bossa Nova Baby. Um, but around the same time that you guys were starting your relationship with Elvis, you were also starting a very successful relationship with Atlantic Records, um, eventually moving to New York and, and writing hits uh, for Ruth Brown and, and Big Joe Turner, um, and then getting into writing and producing all the Coasters hits, including Youngblood, which was a number one R&B hit that also crossed over to the pop top ten. I saw her standing on the corner <laughs> Look at that. Look at that. Young blood. Young blood. Tell me about it. Young blood. I can't get you out of my mind. So many of your songs were 50 50 co writes with Jerry. But Youngblood was co-written with Doc Pomus, as was She's Not You, which Elvis had recorded. Um, talk about working with Doc and in what ways bringing another writer into the equation kind of impacted the dynamic that you guys had established. Actually, with Youngblood, Doc had a title. And the title was taken from a novel that was popular at that time, or at least it was on the the paperback bookshelf, you right. know. Uh, and he had mentioned it to us. He had mentioned it to Jerry Wexler. Hmm. Jerry Wexler had invited Jerry Lieber out to his home for dinner one weekend. And um, as Jerry related the story to me, Wexler said to Lieber, right. Hmm. Uh, It'll be easier that way than Jerry said to Jerry. Um, you know, Doc's got this great title, Youngblood. Do you think you could do anything with it? He said, yeah. He said, um, how fast do you think you could finish that song? He said, well, how much time till we get to your house? <laughs> and the next day... I, I was in the recording studio, and Jerry was there. We were working on something else, yeah. mixing, and uh, Jerry gave me the lyric, and I wrote the music while we were there. Wow. So in that instance, Doc had come up with a title. Right. But we loved Doc. We yeah, really did. Yeah, yeah. He was a great guy. Yeah. And so we just said, well, it's a three-way song. Mm, cool. On the other song, however, that you mentioned. Um, She's Not You. She's Not You. That was much later. And uh, we were all 
in the Brill Building. We had offices in the Brill Building right. at that point on the ninth floor. And Hill and Range had the the top floor. And uh, Doc, and formerly Doc and Morty, had been working up there. Right. But Morty had gone off first to Japan for a while, and then he moved to mm. France. Yeah. And Doc was feeling sort of abandoned. Sure. And he called down one day and said, come on, guys, come up, let's write a song for Elvis. Mm. And so we went up, and uh, and he had some ideas, and we, he and Jerry were kicking around the lyrics, and I came up with the music. Right. And, uh, and so that was a, a second right. song that we co-wrote yeah. with Doc. More of a traditional co-write in that instance. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that was a real, you know, it was actually instigated by Doc, yeah. both lyrically and, and the meeting itself. Yeah, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, the flip side of that Youngblood single was Searching which also went number one R&B and top ten pop. But the first time that the coasters hit number one on the pop chart was the following year with Yakety Yak. Take out the papers and the trash. Or you don't get no spending cash. If you don't scrub that kitchen floor, you ain't gonna rock and roll no more. Yakety Yak! Don't go. Um, love to hear the story behind that song. Well, Jerry and I were... Writing songs one day, and uh, I started fooling around with a kind of countryish, um, the bass pattern, and the right hand was kind of a, not really, but kind of a bluegrassy mm-hmm. feeling. And Jerry loved it, and he started just shouting out a phrase, and I shot back with so you don't get no spending cash right. <laughs> and uh we knew we had a song yeah and um when we did it we did it with the coasters yeah and uh i was sure it was a smash yeah <laughs> jerry wasn't sure and so he put another record that we had recorded with him which was a standard written by some other people zing went the strings of my heart right, right on the back as protection. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, we lost the other side, too. <laughs> but uh, as it turned out, uh, that was uh, a big hit. Yeah, you, you didn't need the protection on that one. <laughs> no, no. Well, your hits with the coasters just kept on coming. In 1959, you had more top tens with Charlie Brown, Along Came Jones, Poison Ivy. And these records, they were adventurous and dramatic and and sometimes they were funny um and the I coasters hope they were <laughs> <laughs> yeah. i mean and the coasters were really important in in very you guys's much. career and development very much when you were writing these songs and producing these songs were you consciously setting out to kind of change the game in r&b to kind of create a little bit of a new sort of crossover genre no not consciously yeah. we were just we knew the guys in the group and what they could do, yeah. and and so we wrote songs where they had individual, most of them, not all of them, where they had individual lines for the individual voices, right. and they they played different roles. They were like an acting troupe, mm. and mm. 
you know, we, the heavy or the father or the bad guy with the right. deep voice. <laughs> right. And, and uh, Billy Guy was the country rube. And Carl Gardner was sort of the straight man or the romantic lead. Right. And uh, Cornell Gunter was the female role. Right. Um, and And we just did those things. And if we came up with an amusing idea... We automatically cast it right. mm -hmm. for the coasters, and that, yeah. that happened with another song that, um, which was Love Potion Number no. Nine, yeah. right. which was going to be a coasters record. But the mm. manager of the Clovers had just left Atlantic, and he had been a friend of ours. Lou Kreffitz was his name. He managed the Clovers, and he had just gotten the job as head of the newly formed United Artists Record Company. Mm, right. And he said, guys, I need, I need, I need help. I need to have a hit. Right. So we did, uh, we wrote another song or two, and with that one as the, the main one, we yeah. gave it to the Clovers. And it was a hit. Was yeah. I took my troubles down to Madame Rue. Uh, you know that gypsy with the gold cap too. She's got a pad on 34th and Vine. Selling little bottles of love potion number nine. The other major group on Atlantic that you guys worked with, of course, was the Drifters. And they had some R&B hits with Ruby Baby and Fools Fall in Love before, you know, crossing over onto the pop chart with There Goes My Baby in 1959. And, and that record was was pretty groundbreaking in terms of bringing in those strings and more of that kind of Brazilian rhythm and, and new percussion ideas. Um, what what kind of music were you guys absorbing or, or, or what was it that sort of prompted you to begin experimenting in the studio in that way? Um, it was a, there was a, an Italian film called uh, Anna. It was a Brazilian group on camera mm. with a, Zabumba, a deep yeah. drum, yeah, and a triangle, and uh, you know but the tune. Yeah. And it had that. Right. Well, we found that you could do a ballad, but if you had that. It held it together yeah. instead of just sounding like doom, doom. Yeah. Right. And so we started playing with that, and we loved the sound of the triangle and the wiro and the, uh, all the, we played around with all the different percussion instruments. Sure, yeah. yeah. It was fun. I think it's just really interesting from the perspective of having already had a huge amount of success that you guys never sort of said, okay, this is what we do, so we're just going to keep doing this formula. It was it was like this movement. You kept experimenting, yeah. growing, changing, trying new things, um, and it's it's exciting to see. I mean, you almost sort of see the 17-year-old the kids who just got excited about writing blues songs. You see that spirit continue all the way of just – getting into new things, trying new things, experimenting, you know, it's, it's really cool to watch that trajectory. 
Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm impressed. <laughs> Another one of those big Drifters hits um, was on Broadway that you wrote and produced. They say the neon lights are bright on Broadway. On Broadway. They say there's always magic in the air. On Broadway. But when you're walking down that street, we wrote that with with Barry Manson. Right, here. with with Barry. We actually rewrote that song oh, interesting. with Barry and Cynthia. Barry and Cynthia had written a song on Broadway and mm. it had been produced by, at that point, the wunderkind uh, Phil Spector. Right. <laughs> and it didn't happen. Mm. And Don Kirshner called and asked if we would rewrite the song because he felt it was a good title and a good could be a a good song. Right. Yeah. And we said we would if Barry and Cynthia said it was okay. Right, right. Sure. And and we actually met with them and sat around in Jerry's living room. Uh and I made some changes to the music mm. a little bit. And we all pitched in and primarily Jerry and Cynthia on lyrics and right. it was a different lyric. Yeah. And we produced the record. You know, with, with that kind of collaborative spirit with writers like Barry and Cynthia and people like Doc Pomus and, and the, the whole Brill building scene that you guys were involved in, if people asked someone in the New York songwriting community around that time, what is it about Mike Stoller? What is it that makes Mike Stoller unique and special as a writer? What, what do you think they would answer to that question? I don't know. I have spoken to people, you know, who said, oh, you know, I know your stuff. I can just tell by listening, mm. but I can't. Mm. I mean, a few things maybe, but I don't really, because I don't write the same song every time. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, Ben E. King uh, spent a short time singing with the Drifters before going solo and scoring hits with Spanish Harlem, which you produced, and Stand By Me, which you and Jerry wrote with Ben. Stand By Me is one of those songs. I mean, I think it's hit the Billboard charts like 11 different times. It's been a hit for, you know, Spider Turner and John Lennon and Mickey Gilley and Maurice White. Um, but even though it's one of those timeless songs, nobody has ever come close to just that the bass line and the string arrangement, the sound of that original record um, is just phenomenal. And I'd love to get a little insight into um, how you kind of came up with that as a songwriter and a producer and putting that all together. Well, Jerry and I had a publishing arrangement with uh, Hill and Range. Mm -hmm. And when it came to an end around 1960... We took a little office on uh, 57th Street, and right. it was it was a, a, a small building. We were on the fifth floor with a skylight and a roof, and there was a corset shop on the ground floor. <laughs> and um, I remember going up there, and Jerry and Ben were up there, and they were working on. Uh, the lyric to Stand By Me. I would say basically the tune 
was Ben's as well, and he was he started to sing it, and I sussed out the chords at the piano, and then as he kept singing, I came up with that bass pattern. Yeah, and Jerry said, "Ah, now we have a hit." <laughs> then we went to the studio, yeah. you know, and we we utilized the bass pattern mm-hmm. greatly, and we started with. A bass and a single string guitar together playing it. Yeah. But we also, I love those instruments. So we had the weirdo on two and the uh, little triangle on four. Right. So it was boom, don't come, ding. Yeah. When the night has come And the land is dark And the moon is the only light we'll see And uh, Stanley Applebaum, who was a wonderful, wonderful uh, orchestrator, took the bass pattern and then built it, put it into the strings and yeah. just it just built all the way. Yeah, yeah. And uh yeah, it's a it's it's a good record. It's a killer record. Yeah. yeah. I mean it's so iconic that it's weird to even think that someone wrote it and recorded it. It just seems like it it just exists as right. part of our culture, you know. Um well, Ben was a, a great guy too. Yeah. You know, it it's interesting to me to think about you guys, by this point, were producing so much. Um, and so often, you're writing songs, you're going into the studio, you are bringing them to life in the way that you have conceived of them from the start. Um, but at the same time, other people are still cutting your songs. Um, once you had the chance to to be the producer and oversee the whole process from the spark of an idea to the to the final outcome... Did it become difficult for you to to trust other producers working with their artists with your songs in terms of, boy, I hope this is going to turn out the way I hear this in my head? I'm trying to think because there were other producers with different artists who did songs that we had already done. Sure. Hmm. And in some cases, um, they weren't great, but in other cases... They added great things to it. I like yeah. Ruby Baby by Donald Fagan, I think is mm. it was brilliant. Mm. And and George Benson's on yeah. Broadway. Yeah. yeah. Um you know, the originals are still very good records, but these were gifts, yeah. you know, if you will. Yeah. 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 yeah, that uh, that George Benson recording of On Broadway is, yeah. is particularly stands out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you about the song "His Kiss," which is a number fifteen R and B hit for Betty Harris in 1964. That song is credited to you and Burt Russell, a departure from your usual collaboration uh, with Jerry. How did that come about? Well, Burt Burns, who used the name Burt Russell and Russell Bird and a whole bunch of other. <laughs> Uh, was after me to work with him. Uh. And I think Jerry was Jerry was writing with some other people. Okay. 
And uh, Jerry had some hits with some other people. I don't think I ever had a hit that I wrote with somebody else. Mm. So it never felt like a a competitive thing or like a problem between the two of you, but no. it was more just kind of branching out and keeping it fresh. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I would imagine that 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 would be an interesting experience, um, having written with one guy who you probably could read each other's minds by that point, and then get yourself accustomed to. Oh, now I'm writing with a different guy. We're gonna get in a room. I wonder what how that'll play out. Yeah, you know, that, yeah. Would, that would be well, interesting. Yeah, he was an interesting guy, Bert yeah. Burns, strange cat. Yeah. <laughs> I have written, you know, more recently with other people, and right. obviously since Jerry's gone, and I've written with some other... I tried to write with Jerry Goffin a couple of times, and I, I, it was impossible. Wow. <laughs> we wrote some songs, but yeah. I, I just... No, it wasn't comfortable. Right, right. right. So yeah. it happens, you sure. know, and he's yeah. written a lot of hit songs. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. it kind of comes back to that theme again of always being willing to try new things and, and look for different avenues. Um, now, uh, Love Potion Number no. 9, which we mentioned a moment ago, was a, a charting pop and R&B single for the Clovers in 1959, but it became a, a bigger hit in 1964 when the British group The Searchers made it a top five pop hit. Now, the British invasion bands were very much inspired by American R&B and early rock and roll. So you see the Rolling Stones recording your song Poison Ivy. You see the Beatles covering quite a few titles from your catalog, Searchin', Youngblood, Kansas City. So did these British invasion bands, you were a hero. You were a guy who actually helped shape their songwriting sensibilities as they were listening to some of these, these records. But when these guys started having hits in the in the early to mid '60s in the U.S., they also kind of became your your biggest competition. Um, and I'm curious if you thought about the reality of kind of battling for chart position against folks who also regarded you very much as a as a hero and an inspiration. Well, no, I I loved the Beatles, for yeah. example. I loved even the, you know, I want to hold your hand, mm-hmm. the early stuff. I I just loved it. I yeah. thought it was great. And when that stuff was going on, Jerry and I were were not writing that much. In fact, we were uh, we had a record company called Redbird, right? And we're, um, we were producing the Dixie Cups, and, yeah, Chapel of Love, and right. Yeah. Well, that. Mm. That yeah. was our first release. Yeah. So there. So you weren't really thinking in terms of uh, competition. No. Yeah, right. yeah. No, I wasn't. Yeah. yeah. One one of those uh, notable uh, production moments was with Steeler's Wheel, a UK band in the early 1970s, um, stuck in the middle with you. written by Joe Egan and Jerry Rafferty in the band, but you produced that thing. And it's interesting, you know, I already had this question lined up to ask, but I'm looking at it in a new way after you spoke about uh, Stand By Me. 
and putting that bass line together with the different percussion elements. And then I think about Stuck in the Middle with you, and I think about that kind of upstrung on the guitar. Yeah, and, and how... Um, well, the up, I, that was theirs, you know, because okay. they were basically... Everything they did was... But, yeah, we experimented a bit with that. We brought the cowbell yeah. thing into... There's so much movement in that track, even even when there's not a huge chord change, it'll stay on that same kind of chord thing, mm-hmm. but there's a groove and a movement to it, and it seems like those same sensibilities that led you to find a moving bass line in Stand By Me kind of would show up in your production work with groups like Steeler's Wheel as well. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe so. I, yeah. You know, yeah. I haven't analyzed. Yeah. Well, let's talk about uh, Is That All There Is, which was a big hit for Peggy Lee in 1969. Is that all there is? If that's all there is, my friends, then let's keep dancing. Let's break out the booze and have a ball. That's one of those songs, again, with this, with this idea of of always trying new things. I mean, that has virtually nothing in common with Yakety Yak or Along Came Jones. No backbeat. Um, yeah. <laughs> and the lyrics are, are existential. The The music is kind of this, sounds like something from a French cabaret. I mean, it, it's a real departure from the, the pop and R&B stuff that you guys were writing up to that point. Um, was there a particular event or, or experience that, that prompted this stylistic shift? Uh, well, that song... I would say we were kind of leaning towards um, some change, big changes in our work, but th- that song, uh, the lyric was inspired by a Thomas Mann novella called Disillusionment, hmm. and Jerry wrote the spoken parts, Yeah, and I set them to some music. And uh, Georgia Brown, who was a British actress and singer who had been on Broadway for a number of years, and she was going back to London to do a a one-woman special on television called Georgia's Back, which, of course, was going to open with a picture of her back. (laughs) Um, And uh, her agent, a fellow named Hilly Elkins, who Jerry and I knew, brought her up to hear some songs. And uh, she ended up doing, I think, Saved and something else. And we played this new thing, just the pieces. Right. She said, I love it, but I have to have something to sing. Mm-hmm. And um, we trotted out a refrain that they'd written for something else and put mm. that she said that's it I'm doing it mm. and she left and Jerry and I looked at each other and said this doesn't make any sense at all <laughs> so Jerry said well I'll work on something and I said well I'll go home and work on some music Yeah. and I called him the next morning and I said hey I got the music and he said well um, I don't really want to hear it because I wrote a lyric and I know the lyric is perfect, and I don't want to be distracted by something. Yeah. You know. 
So I said, well, I'll come over. And I said, listen, let me play you the music. He said, no, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> I said, please, let me play it. He said, all right, play it. And I played it. And he said, play it again. And I played it. And he sang along with it. And mm. we didn't have wow. to change a syllable, wow. anything. <laughs> it worked perfectly. Awesome. It's the refrain. Yeah. And then we... Uh, did a demo of it at one point, I think with on a tack piano, mm. and he gave it to Peggy Lee when she was at the Copacabana. Mm. And she said, I, that's my life story. How did you know? I was in a fire like that. Mm, wow. Know. So we went, <clears throat> we had to be out in California for some other reason, and um, we got an okay to produce her on that song and another song. And uh, we got hold of some records and Peggy was very taken with Randy Newman's album. Mm -hmm. And I heard it and I thought it was fabulous. Yeah. And we met and I guess I didn't meet on one day and Jerry said to Randy, score it like a movie. Mm. And he took basically like the last two verses are pretty much what I had written, but he changed the first two verses in the background, not right. not in the singing part. Yeah. But he did it was a brilliant, brilliant yeah. job. And it it is a gift. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think I realized that Randy Newman did the arrangement on yeah. that. That's really yeah. cool. And the wow. orchestration. And we yeah. We recorded it at one of the big, I forget if it was United or one of the older studios on Sunset Boulevard. And um, Peggy was getting close. And finally, something happened, and it it was perfection. Yeah. Yeah. 35 was absolutely (laughs) perfection. And she came in and said, play back. And the engineer had forgotten to push the button. Oh, come on. Oh, jeez. By that point, she said, oh, I can do it again. And she did. But we pieced together the spoken parts from all of But she didn't know that. Yeah. Wow. And it it came out. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Initially, after she said, you know, I don't do more than two takes. I don't have to. (laughs) Well, she ended up... 36. Yeah. 36. Um, And uh, we thought, you know, they weren't going to release it because it had no backbeat. Right. You know, and uh, Capitol Records was focused on Grand Funk Railroad. Wow. (laughs) Finally, because they were trying to sell their new acts to different TV shows. Right. And I think it was Joey Bishop had a a television show, and he said, well, I haven't had Peggy Lee in a long time. Hmm. Yeah. So they went to Peggy Lee and said, Peggy, would you do? And she said, yeah, if you release my record. Wow. (laughs) So they pressed up 1,500 records, and she went on, and she did the thing, and as they say, the the foam board lit up, (laughs) and, and it became a big hit for her. Wow. Yeah, incredible. But that was kind of the direction we were leaning in. Right. 
And we ultimately did, like seven years later, after she was no longer with Capitol, yeah. uh, we convinced A&M Records that they should sign her f at least for an album. Yeah. And, uh, and you guys produced that Mirror album. And that's right. Right. So uh, we went from writing popular songs to writing unpopular songs. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. That's great. Well, you guys wrote a, a fantastic song called The Girls I Never Kissed that Frank Sinatra recorded in the 80s. The pretty girls go strolling by I look at them and heave a sigh And think of all the things I've missed And all the pretty girls I've never kissed And I look at this list of artists who have recorded your songs And, I mean, it's just... It's icon after icon. Frank Sinatra, Elvis, The Beatles, Aretha Franklin, Buddy Holly, Little Richard, Muddy Waters, B.B. King, Johnny Cash, Ray Charles, um, and, and the list goes on and on and on. Is there an artist out there who you really wish had recorded one of your songs but, but never did? Sure. Matt uh, Cole, hmm. Billy Holiday, a lot of, a lot yeah. of people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and kind of in the... In the same vein of that last question, um, Smokey Joe's Cafe opened up in, in 1995 and became the longest-running musical review in, in Broadway history. Um, I think the show had something like 40 Lieber and Stoller songs in it. Um, and the success of that show demonstrated the staying power and the enduring legacy of your catalog. Um, these are songs that people continue to connect with you know, generation after generation. Given the long list of hits that you've written and all the, the many things you've been involved with, if you had to choose one song to put in a time capsule, one song that you would want to be remembered for 500 years from now, what song do you think you'd choose? The one I'm writing now. Nice. <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> well, this has been... Uh, more of an honor for us than I can even articulate yeah. just to Whoa. listen to you share your stories from your career, and we thank you so yeah, much for doing much. this. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to both of you. Thank you for listening. To find out more about our guests, stream episodes, get a sneak peek at upcoming interviews, or to contact us with your feedback, visit songcraftshow.com. While you're there, sign up for our mailing list so you can stay up to date with everything that's happening in the Songcraft universe. We'd love to stay connected with you, so please like our Facebook page at facebook.com backslash songcraftshow. And if you enjoy what we're doing here at Songcraft, please take a moment to leave us a rating and review on iTunes, which truly helps potential listeners discover these conversations. And we look forward to getting together with you again for the next episode of Songcraft.